Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't, blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourselves up. I told that five-story building, you're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, you t- the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you and O'Reilly. They can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisons in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, over, when they, when they over incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march, a demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marches never changed anything. All right, time for another installment of It's My House, and we have a, a guest today uh, who I guess will be calling in momentarily. However, while we're doing that, uh, and we've been doing a gentrification theme all this week except for Monday, so today's podcast is titled Gentrification Solutions, so we'll be back in a few minutes, hopefully with our guest.
Okay, we're back uh, here in this man house. Man, we've been doing a, I guess we it wasn't playing out this way, because um, Monday we just did like a, a one-minute podcast. But uh, Tuesday it, we did gentrification 101, and then I think Wednesday we did uh, gentrification versus generational wealth. Uh, we were on gentrification yesterday, so today is Friday. So today is um, we have a live guest today, uh, Gentrification Solutions. The live stream number, as usual, is 619-768-2945. And many people, and that song that we just played by the Pretenders, that, that's a gentrification song. I mean, uh, the person who wrote that song, who's the lead singer for the uh, Pretenders, is originally from Akron, Ohio. Um, and where she grew up, that's what you know. That's that that song. My city was known, uh, which was basically when she lived there, predominantly white, probably still is, uh, neighborhood, and came back gentrified. So before we bring our live guest on, I'm going to play a part of a legendary, what I consider a legendary 60 Minutes interview that gives you, because a lot of people just think gentrification is an urban city type thing uh, that affects mostly, you know, uh, brown or black neighborhoods. But it, it's larger than that. So I'm going to play part of this uh, 60 Minutes interview, and then we're going to get to our uh, guest today. My home is not for sale, and if my home isn't safe, nobody's home is safe. What Jim Salit is talking about is the city of Lakewood, Ohio, taking his house, his home, through eminent domain to make way for a high-priced condo that will pay the city more in taxes than he and his wife Joanne do. And he says he's not going to take it lying down. It's a close-knit, beautiful neighborhood. It's what America's all about. And I'm going to fight them tooth and nail. I've just begun to fight. I'm Mike Wallace. I'm Morley Safer. I'm Ed Bradley. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. Those stories and Andy Rooney tonight on 60 Minutes. Just about everyone knows that under a process called eminent domain, the government can and does seize private property for public use to build a road or a courthouse. But did you know the government can also seize your land for private use if they can prove that doing it will serve what is called the public good? Cities across the country have been using eminent domain to force people off their land so that private developers can build more expensive homes and offices which will pay more in property taxes than the buildings they are replacing. Under eminent domain, the government buys your property, paying you what is determined to be fair market value. But now, people who don't want to sell their homes at any price just to see their land go to another private owner are fighting back. The bottom line is this is morally wrong, what they're doing here. This is our home, and we're going to stay here, and I'm going to fight them tooth and nail. I've just begun to fight. Jim and Joanne Salita are refusing to sell the home they've lived in for 38 years in a quiet neighborhood of single-family houses in Lakewood, Ohio, just outside Cleveland. The city of Lakewood is trying to use eminent domain to force the Salites out to make way for more expensive condominiums. 
But the Salites are in effect telling the town, hell no, they won't go. We talked about this when we were dating. I used to point to the houses and say, Joanne, one of these days we're going to have one of these houses. And I meant it. And I worked hard. What would you do? I worked in the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, we worked very hard for this and paid it off. And we said, oh, we've got it. We, we paid off our home. I retired. And now we're going to spend the rest of our days here and pass this on to our children. But Lakewood's mayor, Madeline Kane, has other plans. She wants to tear down the Salit's home, plus 55 homes around it, along with four apartment buildings and more than a dozen businesses, so that private developers can build high-priced condominiums and a high-end shopping mall, and thus raise Lakewood's property tax base. This is a project... The mayor told us she sought out a developer for the project because Lakewood's aging tax base has been shrinking and the city simply needs more money. This is about Lakewood's future. Lakewood cannot survive without a strengthened tax base. Is it right to consider this a public good? Absolutely. What you're saying effectively is that the Salit's neighborhood has to be sacrificed for the greater good of the city of Lakewood. I guess I'm saying that uh, that neighborhood is being asked mm -hmm. to um, and it's difficult and it's unfortunate that they are being asked to give up their home. They want this whole area because of the view of the park. Well, it's a beautiful view. It is an awesome view. They know it's gorgeous and they want it. It's that simple. This whole area is called Scenic Park, but that's the problem. Because it is so scenic, it's a prime place to build upscale condominiums with great views over the Rocky River. Those condos will be a cinch to sell. But the condos can't go up unless the city can remove the Salites and their neighbors through eminent domain. And to legally invoke eminent domain, the city had to certify that this scenic park area is really, quote, blighted. We're not blighted. This is an area that we absolutely love. It's a close-knit, beautiful neighborhood. It's what America's all about. And, Mike, you don't know how humiliating this is to have people tell you you live in a blighted area and how degrading this is. You're the mayor. You know the place. Tell me what is blighted about that area. The term blighted is a statutory word. It, is, it really doesn't have a lot to do with whether or not your home is painted. It is a legal statutory that? term Meaning? that is used to describe an area. And the question is whether or not that area can be used for a higher and better use, whether wait, wait, that wait. area... What does that mean, a higher and better use? What's higher and better than a home? The term blight is used to describe whether or not the structures generally in an area meet today's standards. And it's the city that sets those standards. So Lakewood set a standard for blight that would include most of the homes in the neighborhood. A home could be considered blighted if it doesn't have the following. Three bedrooms, two baths, an attached two-car garage, and central air. Now, this community is over 100 years old. Who has all those things? You mean it's blighted if it doesn't have three those bedrooms? Those things I just told you. That's the criteria. And it's ridiculous. You don't have central air? No, and we don't need it because of the air. 
we always have a breeze. Sure, right off there. Lake it's Erie, beautiful. the breeze comes it's right through here all the time. We counted all the attached garages in Lakewood. There's 20 in the whole city. We counted 20. In and the by the way, we got up at a meeting and told the mayor and all seven council members their houses are blighted according to this criteria. My understanding is that using the criteria that are in place, more than 90% of the houses in Lakewood could be deemed blighted, including the houses of the mayor and of every one of the city council members. True? Do you have two bathrooms? No. Blight. Two-car garage? No. Blight. <laughs> is the garage attached? No. Blight. And your lot size is under 5,000 square feet? Oh, well under. You've called that area a cute little neighborhood. You didn't call it a cute little blighted neighborhood. I mean, you and I know that it's not a blighted neighborhood. I would never personally walk that neighborhood and uh, indicate that that neighborhood is not attractive or, I mean, I would never say that. Um, it's a cute little neighborhood. It is a cute little neighborhood. You'll get me to say it on the record. It is a cute <laughs> little neighborhood. Cute? Maybe. But without those new condos, it won't produce enough property taxes to satisfy the mayor and the city council. That's no excuse for taking my home. My home is not for sale. And if my home isn't safe, nobody's home is safe in the whole country, not only Ohio, but this is rampant all over the country. It's like a plague. This is a nationwide epidemic. We have documented more than 10,000 instances of government taking property from one person to give it to another in just the last five years. Dana Berliner and Scott Bullock are attorneys at a libertarian nonprofit group called the Institute for Justice, which has filed suit on behalf of the Salites against the city of Lakewood. They claim that taking private property this way is unconstitutional. It is fundamentally wrong and contrary to the Constitution for the government to take property from one private owner and hand it over to another private owner just because the government thinks that person is going to make more productive use of the land. Everyone knows that property can be taken for a road, but nobody thinks that property can be taken to give it to their neighbor or the large business down the street for their economic benefit. People are shocked when they hear that this is going on around the country. And it's not just people's homes that are the targets in these eminent domain cases. The Institute for Justice has also filed suit against the city of Mesa, Arizona to save Randy Bailey's brake repair shop, okay, a shop he got from his father and hopes someday to pass on to his son. The city of Mesa, citing the need for redevelopment, is trying to force Bailey to relocate to make way for an Ace Hardware store that would look better and pay more taxes. Redevelopment to me is, uh, you know, work with the existing people there and redevelop. Right. Not... You get out, we're bringing this guy in. Bailey's brake service has been on this corner for more than 30 years. In Mesa, this is the corner, Main Street and Country Club. There's not a better corner in this city. And business has been pretty good down the years? Business has been awesome. Now, what used to be in all of this property, I mean, everything else has disappeared. The city come in and, and uh, got immediate possession and started demolishing it, making it dirt. The city has made dirt out of three restaurants and four businesses that once stood on this five-acre lot. 
And it's not just business properties that they're doing this on. You know, they wiped out eight people's homes over here. You know, your home ain't even safe. Bailey told us his neighbors let the city buy them up, but he's refusing to sell. I'm, I'm standing in their way. I'm their thorn in their side. A thorn in the side of Ken Linhart, who owns the Ace Hardware store a few blocks away. Linhart wants a much bigger store. He could have negotiated with Bailey, but instead, he convinced the city of Mesa to try to buy Bailey's land through eminent domain and then sell it to him. The city of Mesa wants to move Mr. Bailey about a block away. And from what I understand, it's going to be a new building, new equipment, uh, moving expenses, and everything set up for him. I don't see how Mr. Bailey's going to get hurt. You can't replace a business that's been in the same location. This place was built in 1952 as a break and front end shop. I don't care where you move into City Mesa, it would never be the same. So Bailey went to Lenhart looking for a way to stay on his corner. I tried to go to him and see if we couldn't work something out on this. And he told me, no, there ain't room for you there. We're going to let the city just take care of you. Did you ever sit down and try to negotiate with him? No, I never did. Redevelopment seems to me to make obvious good sense. But the... Okay, that's a portion of a, what I consider a legendary 60 Minutes interview uh, that Mike Duck, I mean, not Mike Duck, Mike Wallace conducted. Uh, and... Uh, there's another interview after this one in Arizona. That interview was done oh, probably at least 20 years ago. And um, it still goes on today. It still goes on today. Now, in the entire interview, uh, which you can catch that on YouTube, and today's podcast is titled Gentrification Solution, the missing piece that they didn't put in that interview, and maybe Mike Wallace never brought it up, but their clues is the mayor of Lakewood, Ohio, at that time, and whoever the elected officials were in Mesa, Arizona. One solution, if you can afford it on an individual basis or a collective basis, is bankroll the elections of the mayor the city council people, and pick your person for planning and zoning. That's just a solution, but if you want to stay in a city environment. In any event, today we have a guest on, um, Marcella B. Gomez. Let me open up her mic. Uh, good morning, Ms. Gomez. Hello? Yes, good morning. Yeah. Uh, thank you for coming on. Um, well, you've written the book. Let's start off with the, the name of your book. Uh, well, tell us a little bit about yourself and then the name of your book and what your book is about. Sure. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, great interview. Listen to that interview again. Um, I'm in Baltimore area, and I uh, do uh, community-based uh, participatory research, uh, mostly on how do we rebuild abandoned communities uh, in the U.S. My focus is in Baltimore, obviously, because I'm, I'm here, and more, even more specifically in an area in Baltimore called East Baltimore. Um, been here for uh, about a little over 25 years and had the um, 
benefit of living and working in a community uh, and seeing from the ground how over the years gentrification has continued to happen over these 25 years, but also how historically neighborhoods that have been um, through urban renewal or through redlining, how some of these neighborhoods around the country are still the neighborhoods that are um, at risk for continued gentrification just because of the history of um, this uh, um, marginalization and under being under-resourced and not having a lot of capital. Okay. Uh, the name of your book? The name of the book is Race, Class, Power, and Organizing in East Baltimore, Rebuilding Abandoned Communities in America. And it's pretty much a book about the same neighborhood, a neighborhood in East Baltimore that in uh, primarily about the neighborhood in East Baltimore that went through a process of urban renewal, really, in the 21st century and 20, started in 2002, um, Urban University, uh, Johns Hopkins Medical Institutes, um, being the, the university, the private entity that was able to use eminent domain through the city um, through a partnership with the city to take uh, the land of more than 750 families to build a biotech park adjacent to their existing campus. And it gives a little history also of the area. Quite a few households. Well, now, yes. organizing. Um, what's happening is, as far as on a grassroots level among neighbors there, um, or what did happen? I mean, did neighbors organize to try to stop things or what? Yes, and I think it has to be placed in context, especially the interview we heard earlier was about a um, basically a working class, middle class, maybe uh, low middle class, low income middle class community in Ohio, um, and and it's a great example of how how the government can use its its relate its laws and its relationships with powerful entities because usually the way eminent domain is being used today in 21st century America is different from the way it was used when it was it initially came onto the books when it came onto the books it was for this public good that was described now eminent domain is more and more um, not that it wasn't used for private entities in the 60s, because as the book talks about, the same neighborhood that was um, that I talk about in the book in middle, called Middle East Baltimore, um, adjacent to this very neighborhood in the 1950s, Johns Hopkins and the city also used eminent domain during urban renewal period to take 59 acres and expand its university um, footprint then. And so in 2002, again, when the time was ready for more a large-scale expansion, building a biotech park in 88 acres, which is what this project, this current project is about, it's still, it's ongoing, um, the, the private and the public relationship between the city and the government, again, brought to bear the use of eminent domain 
for this taking of land. Um, so the history is really important neighborhoods like Middle East Baltimore, who um, primarily uh, in the 60s, primarily African-American in 21st century, uh, 99% African-American, low-income, uh, underemployed, unemployed folks, um, who historically and generationally now uh, have been a group of marginalized neighborhoods, this history of land-taking and displacement. And so in 2002, when the university announced in the newspaper that it would be developing a biotech park in this 88-acre footprint adjacent to itself and that neighborhoods, the neighbors would have to move, um, they can do this because – and they can do it through a newspaper as opposed to approaching – a community meeting or sending letters to neighbors or door knocking, um, they can use that kind of real disrespectful and um, racist and classist way of treating neighborhoods that have no power, that have no social capital, um, and and feel no obligation to engage with, with people as good neighbors um, to talk about well, hey, we want to expand, we, we have the need for uh, a development of a biotech park, but instead can just go to the city, a few chosen um, leaders that are, that are engaged in their political process and make decisions and then announce it in the newspaper. So I think we talk about gentrification affecting all different kinds of communities um, since the 50s, 60s, since eminent domain has been used um, but we have to be really clear that different kinds of neighborhoods are approached and are dealt with in very different ways when, when power, when public-private partnerships um, go about using laws to really exploit um, communities that are less powerful than the entities that, have, that are using eminent domain. Um, not that it can't be fought, but... Uh, there is there is a power relationship that that needs to be included and and we have to include the race and class analysis lens if not we're really not doing justice to the history of how we've been building communities uh, in the US so as you said in uh, 2002 when the city made such an announcement uh, the neighborhood uh, was really tired the neighbors were very tired of the typical way that this particular institution has, over the last 100 years, expanded itself, grown from one square block um, to more than 15 square blocks in 100 years. And in that very neighborhood, each time it grows, it's, it's either it's either buying someone property or someone's property or it's taking someone's property. So from one square block to 15 or more, there are people who were in those 14 square blocks that are now part of the uh, footprint of the institution. So the people today who were impacted when they heard this announcement were children and grandchildren of people who 20, 50, 60 years ago were whose land were taken and who had been told that eventually their their land would be taken by the institution because they live in the in the periphery of this institution and the generational wisdom of the people showed that the community, the university would 
eventually expand because their mom, their mama told them and their grandma told them and their auntie told them. Um, and they'd hear stories about, or as children, the, they'd say in interviews, they'd say the white men from Hopkins is knocking on uh, my grandma's door asking if they can buy their house and, and grandma doesn't want to sell, but they keep coming back. Um, so there's a, in, there's a ingrained history in this community that about being their land being taken, being at risk for their houses being taken, whether they rent or they own. Um, and so in 2002, when this announcement came, uh, a group of people gathered about 100 or so in a, in a church, uh, and I was lucky enough to be there because I was living and working in the neighborhood at that time, around uh, organizing around other health and housing issues, and uh, decided that enough was enough, and they were really tired, and they knew this would come, and just really uh, a real uh, one of those turning points where you get pushed too far and this is it and and out of that um, came uh, a group that organized against the gentrification against the taking um, however at that time there was a Supreme Court uh, hearing uh, challenging eminent domain this was from Kilo versus the state of Connecticut um, a similar story to what we heard just now in your interview uh, where uh, a small town was being uh, threatened with eminent domain for development of, uh, I think, a pharmaceutical industry, industry, luxury condos, uh, to really, you know, whole area would be changed and the community wouldn't stand for it. And one particular um, family took it to court, they lost, and it went up to the Supreme Court. So during this time when this was happening happening in Middle East, it was being heard. The the case was being heard in 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 the Superior Court, and it was a big issue because if they won, it meant that uh, if the if the family won, it meant that now we could challenge eminent domain and likely win because it would it's, it would be the same kind of taking the taking for a biotech park. It wasn't for a road like it historically. The, the law had historically been um, uh, placed on the books. Um, and then if the, if the state of Connecticut won, uh, then it meant that officially now the Superior Court is saying that you can use any, you can use eminent domain to take land and you can redefine public good. Basically what they did was they redefined what public good is because as was said earlier, the law states that uh, the policy states that it has to benefit the public, the taking from private to private, meaning from like a owner to another private owner institution, like a Johns Hopkins medical institution, that that has to show uh, public benefit. And so what that superior uh, court decision did was it redefined the public good as anything that would benefit the public. And they interpreted that as, the tax base being increased, um, and they in, in, they interpreted it widely, um, and it wasn't a unanimous decision. It was a majority decision. There were uh, some of the judges who spoke really harshly about what this was going to do now to people who didn't have power, because now their land could be taken, and it could the taking could be interpreted as a public benefit, just because it would be interpreted as increasing the tax base. So that 
had a critical decision for us organizing, and because of that, um, we were we were not able to stop uh, stop the project just as the one in Connecticut because of that Superior Court case, case was not able to stop that uh, development. Um, however, what we did was organize to slow it down, to stop some of the unhealthy practices that they were doing, such as um, demolishing houses with lead base to a house where people were actually living. Um, the lead dust was spreading into people's homes through their windows. They come home in the evening after work and there'd be dust coating, uh, coating their entire house, children living there. Um, so we, we stopped that. We made them stop until people were relocated or displaced to other places so that they wouldn't be exposed to a health hazard. Um, we challenged the amount that they were, um, uh, they were paying people for their homes. They initially wanted to pay people the same dollar amount that was used in the initial law um, to compensate people for their land because you have to do a fair compensation um, for the taking of the land. They wanted to use the same amount that was uh, listed in the 60s and that was a fight to say, no, you can't do that. You have to bring it up to current day <laughs> cost of living, and you can't do that. Um, and we also challenged that people had to be uh, relocated into a neighborhood that was safer if they weren't going to be – because the, the law is based on this, this, as was said earlier, the fact that there was blight and that if you displace people against their will, you had to be – displacing them into an area where it was a better socioeconomic area for them, meaning you're not just moving them into another blighted area. They have to be moved in, into a place where they're also benefiting, right? Um, and so that was also a big, a big fight because um, the, the intention was just to move people. And initially they wanted to move people only into neighborhoods that were black and that was a that was a, a pushback and a fight as well, saying you can't you can't segregate people, you can't resegregate people. That's illegal. Um, that had to be fought. Uh, we fought for um, preservation of houses that were not as uh, uh, deteriorated, so that people could actually live in the neighborhood and not completely be displaced out this new area that they were rebuilding. Um, and still today, the the challenge goes on because the project is not completed. It's been more than 15 years, but it's not fully rebuilt. Um, there's still a push to have neighbors who were there initially and displace um, what's the opportunity to come back because that's a big issue in neighborhoods is if you rebuild a neighborhood, uh, why can't the people who initially live there live there why can't they be part of the rebuilt neighborhood? Um, and that's when we start using this word gentrification is because if you gentrify the area, then that means you're bringing in a new class and often in the past a new race and class because class and race is so uh, interwoven. Um, and when you increase the cost of housing and increase the cost of amenities, if the area was low income historically, the likelihood that the people who live there can continue to afford to live there, pay the taxes, 
pay the rental costs, pay the costs of amenities. It's really it's a challenge for them to live there. So either they actively get displaced for the rebuilding, or eventually you might say they they self-displace simply because they can't afford to live in the neighborhood, or they 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 remove themselves because the people who are coming in there's a there's a difficulty in their interacting with each other. Um, you know, oftentimes this the class and race barriers. Uh, people come into a neighborhood, they're not that interested in interacting and mingling with the people who were initially there. Uh, so there's there's not skills, there's not some social skills uh, to be able to interact kindly and compassionately with people which results in some of the historic residents not wanting to be in that area because the neighborhood has changed, um, not just with the people and the money and the housing, but with the attitudes and the energy that the people coming into the community um, are treating the the original occupants and the and the neighborhood in general. Okay. I could. Um, well, kudos to you for fighting a good fight. Um, it's needed. What you do now? Do you you're in Baltimore, but do you assist other people in other neighborhoods outside of Baltimore? You're breaking up. Yes, I said yes, I do. And, oh, okay. And right. also, yeah, yeah, and, and you don't have to go far, right? This this type of uh, um, re- rebuilding. The way we're rebuilding, um, you know, as one person has said, um, in in redevelopment in the United States is gentrification. Uh, and it's not that will gentrification happen if we redevelop an area, um, particularly areas like the one that, that I'm in and working in, which is um, historically abandoned and low-income area, which is why I mentioned the history of urban renewal, because to talk about eminent domain without talking about urban renewal, which is when that that law was developed, um, would be missing a really big part of of how that that came to be used. It was basically the weapon of urban renewal. Eminent domain was the taking of land um, uh, using that kind of law, uh, using the the premise of uh, Slum and blight. That's those are the two words that were used in the in the legis- uh, legislation was slum and blight. Um, but this is happening everywhere: Ohio, Baltimore, next door to us, D.C. Um, uh, you know, it used to be called Chocolate City. Now they call it Cappuccino City because so much gentrification is being is happening. In fact, just two weeks ago, um, there was a suit filed against the government of D.C. for suing against gentrification. Um, suing the city for gentrification because the city is changing so much that and so many of the historical residents are getting displaced because of the way um, community urban rebuilding, community rebuilding, redevelopment, revitalization, whatever the words we're using these days is resulting in just uh, massive displacement of residents that were there um, who, like the gentleman on the interview said earlier, who worked really hard to finally own a piece of property. You know, land um, is a big thing in the U.S. for how we start to root ourselves in some asset and root ourselves in um, trying to move out of, for some people, generational poverty 
uh, land is the thing that helps us get out of that. We, we, we have access to land and we start having access to loans and we then start to be able to send our kids to school. Um, these are the land really helps people move forward. And so when, um, when land becomes something that can be exploited by people with more power simply because of that, that power and that connection with, with government, um, it's a real, it, it becomes a real fundamental, I think, urgent crisis in, in the country. And this is happening everywhere. Um, not just Baltimore, not just uh, DC, not just areas where there's marginalized and low income folks may not have as much power but in many communities where when the land is wanted and there's, and it's usually by someone who has more power than the people who have the land, um, then it's going to be taken. And because people with power have more strong ties with government, then that relationship is an equation for basically expansion, land taking, exploitation of land. Um, Yeah. Yeah, well, it's happening globally. It's happening globally. Absolutely. I was in Asia last fall in a couple of spots, and this is happening over there, too. Um, And you're right, there's there's typically a connection to uh, somebody in power. Um, Now, the... the, um, well, my story, just real briefly, a part of my story, is um, what I, because you're right, it's great that you organized. And I attempted to organize when I was going through a debacle about, I guess, five years ago now, maybe six years ago, something like that. Um, because I realize as a lone wolf, you really can't do anything, uh, particularly if you're in a city, of, you know, of any size. Um, let's say 100,000 people plus. So I decided to go from urban to rural, where basically it's a lot easier to do things and dramatically a lot less expensive to do things, and you can protect your... Your interest. Matter of fact, I I don't even I don't even like to say I I do real estate anymore. I I, I do land and portable buildings. I went through a whole. I got educated real fast on. Um, well, maybe not so fast. It took three or four years, but um, yeah, you you couldn't. If something was offered to me free, here's the deed in Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Baltimore, Boston, what have you, I, I wouldn't take it. I'm, I'm, I don't like the word real estate. However, land's a different thing, so I went rural on it, uh, which was which is one of the solutions that uh, we talk about on here occasionally. Uh, for people tuning in, you're listening to It's My House as Usual, and today's podcast is titled Gentrification Solution. We have a guest, uh, Marcella B. Gomez, uh, who's written on this topic. And, uh, now, you mentioned uh, 
the organization or a, a, a group of people that you're working with in Baltimore, it's 750 households. Did I hear that figure correctly? We organized when this project started. Um, there were, yes, more than 750. 750 households. Now, what, if, if you know the figure, what was the figure that was being offered originally to these, these homeowners, just a ballpark figure? So, you're breaking yes. up again. Yes. Hold on, wait a minute. You might be on my end. Wait a minute. Let me turn something off. Okay. Now, what was the original figure that was being offered to these these homeowners? Uh, you're still breaking up. Okay, let, let's try it again. All right, can you hear me? Can you hear? Can yeah, yeah, uh, I can hear. Yeah, what was the figure? Because every time you said it, I couldn't hear. Okay, well, the neighborhood was one of uh, one of the more poor neighborhoods, right? Large, impacted neighborhood. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. Okay, great. So, uh, a house could be. Uh, dollars, thirty thousand um, dollars, and so what they they would be they they wanted to give for that house uh, money, um, and maybe uh, a, 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 not a blight, but a, a so you have to give the sorry. No, sorry. They offered thirty thousand dollars initially per house. They would offer the right. They, what they offered on average was the value of the of what the house was assessing for in that neighborhood, right? Okay. So, All right. so I don't know if you can see the problem with that because if says you have to move to a neighborhood that has a higher socioeconomic status, and you're going to give this person value of the neighborhood that they're coming out of you know is supposed to be blighted and some then if you what you're supposed to compensate people for is the square foot that they could now take that money and buy several foot of house in a different neighborhood remembering that into a neighborhood or they have to move into a neighborhood that has a higher socioeconomic status so you do that if you're going to that has a higher socioeconomic status, it's, it makes sense that the square footage for land, the cost of square footage of land is going to be greater in the neighborhood that they supposedly have to move into if they're being forced to move because of eminent domain. But initially, the folks involved, Hopkins, the city, also the Annie Casey Foundation was involved in this it, this wasn't just, uh, you know, like a little private group of people. This was a huge project with all the, you know, powers that be in the city and state involved and agreeing that this kind of taking was okay. The agreement was to just give, say, a person's house value that came in at twenty, twenty-four thousand. They would, they were uh-huh. going to give that family that exact twenty-four thousand to move into another neighborhood 
where that money couldn't buy them the same square footage of house. They'd have to get into something that was smaller in order to use that money that was given. So that was a huge fight, right? Because not only is it unfair, but it's, it's, it's ashamedly unfair that these kinds of institutions felt it okay and there was no scrutiny and no organized community pushing back to say, you can't do that. That's, you, you can't take a law and not apply what it, what's intended by the law. And certainly you have to increase living. You know, this is 40 years later, folks. We can't do that. Um, 50, 40, 50 years later. What that ended up being is they had to increase the value of what they would compensate people for their houses so that if they moved into a neighborhood, they could get into a similar square footage. And that's that whole using eminent domain. If they're not moving into a neighborhood that isn't socioeconomically better, you can't use eminent domain because the whole purpose of it is public benefit. So if you're taking land and you're putting them into a worse situation, then it's really it, there's someone it's to someone's demise. And at least the the, the language of the law. Speak the language of tries to, but you know, law is really a very different thing than the way the intention of how the law is written. Right. Well, you know, now I'm listening, listening to there's all right because I'm looking at this um, because, like I said, I I stepped away from the urban stuff and went rural. Um, But if a person or they want to stay. And you know, like like in this, this case, Baltimore, but it can be D.C., Boston, Chicago, what have you. All right, you mentioned seven hundred and fifty because I'm looking at seven hundred and fifty households, and if you put the value of anywhere from twenty thousand to thirty thousand, you know, we're talking about millions of dollars. If they would, you know, like say, if if, if they form a collective, um. Matter of fact, let me even break it down. In in the United States, to my knowledge, unless things have changed over the last few years, and I'm sure they have this in Baltimore, they have neighborhood civic associations. And in the United States, to my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, wrong, you or anybody else that's listening to this podcast, that is probably the largest untapped source of wealth and political power in this country. I don't know of any civic associations that are united on a political basis and an economic basis. Because you can figure that you put out there, I'm looking at 750 households times, let's say, 25,000 or 30 households. But Here's where the and here's what here's the vision I have on that for people who are looking for urban solutions. If you have that many households together in one particular city, and you have a membership, it needs to be membership just like the NRA, five dollar memberships, twenty five dollar memberships, thousand dollar memberships, at different level of memberships, and with part of your membership money, you can hire lobbyists that can basically get you the political capital that you need on the local level 
or even state level. In other words, you can level yourself out where you can you can leverage yourself out where you can compete fake toe to toe with somebody like John Hawkins. To my knowledge, that has not been done here in the United States. And it's a, a it's a huge I mean like I see it's sitting up there untapped. Uh I, I commend you on what you're doing. You're that's one of the reasons why I contacted you. You're the, the only person that I know of that's come even close to something like that. Um, and there's a, because you can now with the, the, the tools of the Internet and social media, you know, that 750 people can get online and raise a couple of million dollars, believe it or not, within a week. Matter of fact, just what a last, no, maybe no more than two weeks ago, there's this guy out of Atlanta. This guy's he raised like nine or ten million dollars within like five, five, no more than five days, no more than five days. Uh, and he's his whole fund is basically you know he he went through the Securities Exchange Commission. Uh, that's one way to do it. Uh, but another way to do it is like say, but you got your civic associations. You get a corporate entity there, and then you you uh, have a, a membership based thing, and then like I say, you hire lobbyists. Because the, what I learned when I was getting raked over the coals is essentially you've got to bankroll. Maybe you don't have to, but a whole lot of people that are, that get power do it. You have to bankroll mm-hmm. not just one person on the city council. You have to bankroll it all the way around the city council and the mayor's office to get the political clout that you need um, to preserve neighborhoods or whatever you want to, you know, do with that neighborhood. Um, and then, of course, it, it's an education component that needs to be put in there. What you're doing, you're an educator. I consider you an educator because uh, many times when it, I mean, gentrification doesn't happen overnight. So, you know, if people would be aware of, okay, this is how the city runs, this is how plan- zoning and planning operates, oh, their meetings, they're free, I can attend, and, you know, if we can go back in the time machine 30 years, you know, that would help too. But however, nobody's invented the time machine yet to my knowledge. So they would get educated yeah. now, which you're doing, and then they can say, all right, wait. so this won't happen to our children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren 30 years from now, because it's coming. All right. right. It's coming 30 years from now. Uh, but, you know, just get them educated and just realize, okay, I might be, it might appear that I'm powerless in my little household here and it's dollars $30,000 tax assessment. However, we got 750 of us and the way government operates, at least from my little filter, is government picks on the lone wolves, people that have not, 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 not yet organized. However, once you organize into a wolf pack and then they see you've got some campaign money, you've got a lobbyist here or there, and you can make campaign contributions to the mayor or whatever, then it's a whole different ballgame. That. That's why it's not like see in, in my case, I went country 
because I was able to do a whole lot more by myself. Um, but still, I had to, you know, in a place that I set up shop in now, you know, I can go fishing with yeah. the mayor, and I'm good there. But yeah. what you're doing, it, it, it's a, yeah. a real big need. That's why I asked, uh, do you do other cities besides Baltimore? Um, well, I think because I, I think you're – sorry, go ahead. I think you're absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. You know, Frederick Douglass said, "Power does not give up. You have to give anything up. You have to organize and push to get anything that is going to be rightfully yours or is rightfully yours." And um, you're right. The only reason that such a book that was written could be written was because of the power of the people. That, like I mentioned, that church meeting. Project where more than a hundred household residents in their households were there saying, "Enough, enough! We're we're not taking this stand, laying down anymore." That was became that, that's what became this the most powerful force because we certainly didn't have money, um, but we had people who were organized and were willing to step out of their regular routine and decide that they're going to stand up to power. So there's there's many things you know. To be organized is powerful. It's probably the only force strong enough to challenge any neighborhood and also to challenge what's going on in our country or any time when power um, is exploiting. Um, but it's not just that people can come out of their those 750 households and come out immediately and organize because people have been uh, lulled if they're middle class and have a lot of money or don't have disposable or are working two jobs, um, they're caught up in a different kind of priority and necessity and urgency in their lives. Um, you know, they're not thread treadmill of or that wheel of just trying to make ends meet. And in communities that have little social capital and have little economic capital, um, they're caught up in, in different things just to get by. So organizing communities that have been historically disempowered um, is really hard because people are caught up. And it's why it's often the communities that are easily taken for exploitation because the people who want their land know that the, the, the fight that, they, that can come from their, want their, their land that's being taken um, it's very small, it's very little, un- unless there's an organized force. Because um, even though communities may have organizations, they're barely, in some communities, they're trying to keep the trash off the street. They're trying to keep the illegal dumping from behind. They're trying to keep the crime um, that might be happening, the drug dealing that might be happening. Um, they're trying to just deal with things like in an under-resourced community where the city and the state have really marginalized them. And they're trying to take care of just being safe and building networks to be safe because they've the city has really left them behind, right? Small tax base. They haven't, the city has looked to help um, them. Let, let me interrupt. I, I got a comment on it. Yesterday we did a podcast. Uh, it was twelve reasons why your neighborhood might be gentrified, and the, I understand what you're saying. All right, but the, in my, my the money's there. 
the money in those neighborhoods are there because in those neighborhoods there's no shortages, particularly African-American churches. And in, in all these cities, particularly urban cities, there's one or two, at least one or two mega churches. So if some of these churches, and I'm not even talking about the mega churches at this point because the Preflo dollar, but two, three years ago, asked for $65 million and got it for a Learjet. Um, you have these churches where there's no shortage of black churches in the ghettos or low-income neighborhoods in, throughout the United States where pastor and first lady have matching Cadillacs or Rolls Royces or Bentleys. All right. So the money is there. The money's there. One of the 12 uh, things that we went through yesterday, 12 reasons why your neighborhood might get gentrified, is I went through because on YouTube, there's no shortage of videos in black neighborhoods of people beating each other up, robbing each, robbing people for Air Jordans, in a few cases, killing it. So the money is there. What's missing is, and this is another reason why I called you uh, for this podcast, is awareness and education. We have, the, if we can spend $250 for a weave of whatever bundles cost or for Air Jordans or to, to give Pastor his 10%, the money is there. But we just, in my opinion, we haven't been, there, there are two things, in my opinion, that need to be happening. There needs to be an awareness program out here that can happen on, because a lot of people individually don't realize how much power they have economically. And then the collective power, because like I said, there's no shortage. In your city alone, Baltimore, there's got to be at least 500 churches. At least 500. Uh, I think black church is taking like a billion dollars a week. If not a week or a month, something like that, some outrageous thing. But for, but it, it stops at that pulpit for some reason to it. Not not but not with all churches, but to a high degree. So if we had, in my opinion, if there was an awareness program out here, it had to be massive. And then and that's part of education to educate people on this is the kind of power you had individually have. And if you get together, it can be a little store for a church. If you get together, yeah. this is what you can do economically. I, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I think it also it also assumes that the churches have the have the have in mind that they oh. want to benefit the neighborhood, you, you right? Muted there. Hello, can you hear me? Uh-huh. Uh, we can't. Uh, hold, let me refresh on my end because I couldn't. Hello? Oh, yeah, now I can. I, I have to refresh on this. Okay, repeat that. Okay. What I was going to say is it also assumes that the church wants to work with the community. So I can give you a specific example that we we just dealt with. Um, where to help neighbors and uh, instead of outside 
Okay, we're breaking up again. Okay. I'm Can missing you... part of what you're saying. Okay. So what I was saying was, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you clear now, yeah. We just went through an an issue with the church. So Archdiocese in Baltimore, um, the church, St. Winslow's Church in, in Middle East Baltimore, same neighborhood. We tried to buy a building on its uh, that's part of its campus. The church is old, over 100 years old. The building is in disrepair. We tried to buy this building to use it partly as a community center, partly as a collective um, residential and entrepreneur center. And the church didn't want to sell to us. Instead, what they, who they sold to was a big developer, um, Chinese investment money, who's working with Hopkins, and they're going to build uh, condominiums for visiting doctors and an office space to rent out, right? So here's a church, mm-hmm. like you're saying, the, the Catholic Archdiocese is the biggest landholder in the city of Baltimore, not unlike many cities, okay? The world. And they're all. The world. They're right? the biggest Thank landholders in the, besides the queen in the world. Thank you, right? So it's true that the churches have money and power. In fact, this church was within the 88-acre footprint, but they were excluded from eminent domain. That meant that their land was not taken. They were the only one. Of all the churches, there were maybe like 15, I think 15 churches in the 88-acre who were displaced. And I'm talking AME, Methodist, I'm talking the black churches, okay? But the only one who was removed from the eminent domain list was this very church. And now, 15 years later, we try to buy one of their buildings. Instead, who do they sell to? They sell to a developer who's going to continue to expand the biotech park. So I think you're right. It's there is money in the in the neighborhoods that I'm talking about, but it's also what do these what what's their political awareness, right? Do they they may right. say they want to be in the community, but do they have the political awareness? We 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 also have a a big black church in this particular area I'm talking about, um, just outside the biotech area, and this church has managed to leverage its power to buy more houses and to turn them into some um, drug treatment unit spaces um, for the neighborhood. But again, they had to negotiate. They're negotiating with the city relative to a developer like Hopkins who has more power. So it just depends on, you know, in the area I'm talking about, it depends on who's there and who wants the land, right? It's always, you know, when I talk about this, I always say you have to know the neighborhood you're in and who's there and who has the most power, who wants the land. If you're, if you're in a neighborhood where you're, you're with a hospital or a university or a corporation who's trying to develop itself always and expand, then you're dealing with negotiating against them and the city will always take the part of the biggest developer because the developer, if they're big, you know, they're bringing a lot of dollars into the city. So the city council folks, the mayor, like what happened in East Baltimore with this project, they ignored what the residents said and organized because we were organized. But they, the power right. of the city council was so small compared to the power of the developer. So you're right. There's power in our communities. 
I think really the bottom line is how how well can we organize ourselves and how can we leverage or or organize power to also leverage enough money and asset that we actually can be taken seriously when the city decides whether or not it's going to allow land to be used for certain purposes in zoning and planning. Because you can have all the money you want, but if the Department of Planning and Zoning doesn't agree with your plan, then you can't go forward with your development. So there's ways where there's money, the money is important, the organized force, force is important, but if you can't have that relationship with the city and the state in order to get your whatever it is you want to do with that land through, then you're, you're, going, to, you're going to be stopped. So there's, you know, there's different places and, and ways that we have to be really smart about um, how we organize, as you said, education, knowledge, popular education, going into our communities and having alternative ways of people learning about power and organize and what happens, how do we invest money. Like I said, the, the project I'm involved in now, Volar, Village of Love and Resistance, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to uh, help people become um, knowledgeable about if you can invest as little as $50 to be a co-owner and buy one property, maybe there's 20, 50 people who come together and buy one property, rehab that property and sell it, you can begin to be the developer in your neighborhood. You can be, you can, you as a group can organize and become the ones who invest and, and make that profit because we know if you invest, you'll circulate your dollars in the neighborhood. This is a good recipe to stop gentrification because one of the reasons gentrification occurs is because the people who are living there, they're not having a higher income. So we have to talk the other what we really have to talk about when we talk about solutions to gentrification is how do people who are there, how do their income increase so that as the neighborhood changes and we put money into the neighborhood and invest in amenities and in housing that inevitably will drive the the cost of living in that neighborhood up. How do we assure that the existing residents' income can also go up so they can afford what's being changed? And the only way that can happen is if people get better jobs with living wages or they become investors. And one way to do that investment is if people are organized and they become I well we well, can't hear you again. But from what I heard, yeah, that I like that. That's um that's innovative thinking. Um yeah, I like that. I like that. Uh let's see. We got a caller here for you. Uh let me see. Let me hold it. Marcella, can you still hear me? Yes, I can. Can you I hear can. me? All right, great. Let me you got yeah, yeah, I can, all right. Let's open up next. Somebody's calling in for you. Uh area code four oh seven, your mic is open. Good morning. It's her name, but um, very interesting conversation. And um, I love her ideas because, like you said, they're innovative and new. And um, I think we have to re- remember or recognize that the the past political system, the political system we now live in, the educational system, religious system, those things are falling away. As people are waking up and realizing 
the corruption in our government. It's all about money, money, money. Lobbyists and corporations have taken over our government. Why? Because they can pay money. They can you put money in the hands of corrupt politicians and get things done. So like the sister is saying, we have to be more innovative. We have to come up with better ideas. Uh, it's Yeah, money is running this current systems that we live in, but we've got to start re-educating our youth, our children, to not so much focus on the money, but focus on, like, the ideas that she's coming up with, the power the power within a community, the power within our minds, the power to create something new and more effective other than using money. Because I'm hearing money, money, money. But those systems are falling away because they they're, they're corrupt. And they're not getting the solutions that we need. And so I think uh, she's right on uh, point with coming up with new ideas. I think that's why we have these conflicts and frustrations with uh, uh, people taking over your land and uh, your communities so we can come up with better ideas because that's not working. In this new generation, we've got to come up with some more creative ideas other than focusing on the dollar, the money. So thank you for uh, having the show. I love your your guest ideas, and so keep up the good work, sister. Okay. Well, let me let me chime in on on that. Um, money's always been a factor because I'm, I'm glad she brought up the Catholic Church, which yeah, is the largest landholder. Yeah, they're the largest landholder besides the Queen on the planet. And what they've done, um, matter of fact, another a very important word that she brought up, she brought up was relationships. The Catholic Church has educated people for centuries because they catch people when they're young. They even have orphanages, you know, around the globe. They got to be in the United States still too. So. They've got people that they've educated who are now presidents of corporations. John F. Kennedy came up through the CYO system, Catholic Youth Organization system. I went to Catholic school for three years. I'm not even Catholic. They've got police chiefs. So they've, they've built relationships through the parochial school systems that they've, they've popped up over the centuries. You can call it what you want to call it, but they've educated, I mean, they've opened up schools, all right? You can call it their money, you can call it purposes. what you want, it, but, they, but, yeah. but they've gotten involved and helped shape the system. Now, in yeah. my opinion, where African Americans have missed it, at least in the United States, a lot of us have been absent from the system. We need, we do have some schools, but we need to open up more schools. Yeah, you look uh, at you look at Puerto Rico. You look at Puerto Rico, for instance, has the largest Catholic population in the planet. Probably ninety some percent of the people in in Puerto Rico are mm-hmm. are Catholic. So, so what yeah. happened to the what happened to the Catholics when the hurricane destroyed Puerto Rico? Where are they well, now? Here's the thing. All right, here's the thing. All right, two two entities: the gov- the government anywhere on this planet, and 
the church. The government and the church never said they can be all things to all people. You've got to have, like, Ms. Gomez, you have to have people like that because the people are greater than, matter of fact, can shape or mold the government. But you got to put something into it. Same with the school. Yeah, but that's, that's so we, the need, we need more and more grassroots people to educate themselves to get involved yeah. with the system to shape and mold the system. Or, to or actually to, just, to actually re-educate them that religion is not the way to be empowered in this generation, in this uh, society we live in. They have brainwashed so many people that they don't know how any way to live other than focusing on religion and, and Catholicism. So it's time to re-educate. we got to throw out this, all these systems and start all over, basically. Well, that means you're going to have to open. Well, no matter how you do it, you're going to have to. I would once again, I said earlier in this podcast, you have to have an awareness program, which is part of your education program. All right, and then you, um, then you have to have a. I would suggest people have a membership, like the NRA. All right, and with your membership money, you can hire lobbyists, and you can bankroll you know, whatever elected officials. Because essentially, politicians work for business, the business and community interests that basically, because it costs something to hire a secretary. Paper costs money. You know, it costs something to keep those lights on in a politician's office. So essentially, it's just like, you know, uh, some black folks say, Obama didn't do anything for black folks, but he did something for the LGBT community. Well, here's a distinction. The LGBT community helped bankroll PAC money, political action committees, and super PAC money. Matter of fact, let me break it down to a very element, basic thing here. Politicians are just like women. In order to uh, be careful, <laughs> I know. <laughs> in order to take out, and I'm speaking from a man point of view, okay. In order to take a woman out on a date, all right. You even if it's to McDonald's, the man has got to have some type of money, not to give to the woman. But he's got to have money to get to get the transportation, even if it's the city bus, to go pick the woman up and and take her to McDonald's and pay for a meal. Now you can't get lower than the date than that. All right. So he's got to have, matter of fact, even if it's a picnic date, he still has to have the money to get the picnic basket, to get the cold cuts or whatever they're going to eat. And Kate, you are vegan vegetarian. You've got to have money to do stuff. All right. So politicians, and there are some corrupt ones, but politicians, you know, they typically have the relationship to get things done or they know how government works. So you, you can't eliminate the money factor. Well, well you, you, should, you should watch the, the Facebook watch called The Swamp. And uh, the corruption is just so deep that um, money is just being thrown around like 
just a control wheel. It's not even getting things done. It's just get controlling people. So corporate interests. Basically, our government's run by corporate interests, and the pharmaceutical no, being no. one of the largest corporations is influencing their lawmakers. So money is not the answer. All right. On the federal level, 50% of the, the legislation that gets passed is done by grassroots organizations. About three years ago, I had on this podcast Candy Leitner, who was the woman who started Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And she told her story herself when uh, her, the, the, the person who killed her daughter got a tap on her wrist, and she got mad, but she didn't know the difference between a Democrat and Republican. She didn't know anything about politicians, and she didn't have any money. But she learned how politics works. And she, I think, mothers against drunk driving, they're taking like $21 million a year now. And she learned how to get political. And there's a, there's, there's a picture that we have on that podcast with her in the Rose Garden with Ronald Reagan signing legislation. And so you, it, you're going to have to deal with some type of trade. It might not be money, call it whatever you want to call it, but. What Leitner did with Mothers Against Run Driving, she basically used that money to help educate politicians to get the laws of the books now to put drunk DUI people to get them off the road. And then she also has a very powerful. Leitner did that needs to be done with this. She had a very powerful emotional issue going. So if you have a very strong emotional issue. What the working your um you know your plan that's going to well, help you a whole lot. What are talking get... about is very powerful because you have a lot of people that I mean, it's my house. I was getting attacked by a squatter. There are cases of people, and I'm trying to get them on here. That, since she's out of Baltimore, there are people not only in Baltimore City that have the the family house has been paid off. But if you don't pay those property taxes or you don't pay the water bill, there are different tools that a municipality has at its disposal to weaponize the property. If you don't pay that water bill, okay, that property can go up for auction and they can take it. If you have a reverse mortgage and don't know how those, those, those and I think they should be banned, those are, you can lose your house. So there are tools that are there that municipalities have and private individuals have that can take the family house away. And you're not going, like I said, most people that lose a house, and, that, and in my opinion, that's a very emotional topic. Okay. Well, if you, you, gotta, you, gotta, if you go on it. Google, uh, wait a minute, let me add some time to this. If you go to Google, um, What's that thing called? Google, Google, uh, Google Alerts. You go to Google Alerts and you punch in elderly evictions or uh, evictions of el- of the elderly. You're going to get something in your mail every day of elderly people getting evicted. Somebody's grandmother, somebody's great grandmother, who's gotten evicted due to eminent domain not being able to pay the water bill, reverse mortgages, I can go on down the line. And they're lone wolves. That's why I'm saying 
I, I like what she's doing, but you, you've got to organize because a lone wolf is not going to beat somebody who's got an organized wolf pack. The Catholic Church is a wolf pack. They've organized. However, you have black churches that numerically, they're more black churches or Latino churches or Presbyterian churches than the Catholic Church in any given city. But they haven't organized politically and economically. That's why the Catholic Church can come in and do what they want to do. Because the other people haven't organized and they're absent from the system. And away. Say that again. That system, religious systems, political systems, educational systems, those things are falling. Medical system, a new paradigm. If we're in transition, if you look at the chaos and all that's going on, well, I believe that we're in transition from those old paradigms. And this sister is part of the, I think, the new awareness that we need to have to change the program, change the programming. And look at, be more creative. It's like when the Catholic Church turns you down, they don't want to sell you the building because they're still in the old paradigm of selling to some big corporation so they can make more condos and all that. Then that's just an awareness that, oh, they're still in the old paradigm. I need to shift to a new paradigm and show everybody that it can be done. We have the mental, spiritual power backing us up, and we just have to follow people like your guest today who have been through the trials and the disappointments and the rejects, and we're all working for a new paradigm. This old one is falling away. Well, I look, Gary, here's the new paradigm of using old paradigm techniques. You got your 750 households in Baltimore City. See, the way I look at that, that's over $22 million of untapped political capital, social capital, is untapped. And that's just in Baltimore City. But anyway, Ms. Gomez, let's get back to you. What's your take on this? Well, uh, well we can't hear you again. And also, I think the first Oh, Hold on. You, got, go, you got to repeat that again because you were breaking up. I said a comparison of past to. Okay, wait a minute. It, are you on the speakerphone or something? Well, maybe it's me. Viata, can you hear clearly? Because I, I, she's breaking no, up on me. I can't hear her. She, she's breaking up. Okay. Uh, it, can you hear? All right. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you now, yeah. Okay. I said, first, I don't think the comparison of PAC to women is good for many reasons, and I'll leave that there. Um, I think think that you're both right, you know, that we're in a time where there's a lot of changes going on. For example, our city council election last year, um, we had all these new folks coming on, that are they have different ideas. They're thinking differently. They're more progressive. Um, we just had an election for a state at state level. Uh, several incumbents were um, to some new progressive folks, and I don't mean 
uh, young people only. I mean, just people who are coming in with new ideas. Some of them are younger, but there is a change going on. And I think you can see it across the country uh, generally. And as far as the changes around looking more at more alternative ways to really try to bring equity to our cities, particularly in Baltimore after Freddie Gray, the death of Freddie Gray in police custody and uprising, um, the city really had to take a look uh, at what is it that we're doing wrong because that could only happen because we're building communities that are uneven and, you know, we started talking about more and we're segregated. And so that really led to a different discussion or not a different discussion because many of us have been having discussion for years, but a discussion that got raised into different circles and then therefore funding started looking differently because now the, the, the conversation is raised in these different political circles and different circles where there's power and different circles where there's money and maybe different circles where that money can now be leveraged to things that many of us who've been doing the work for years have been, have been trying to get some of that money leveraged at those issues. So I think, I think you're both right. You're, we're talking about a time now where there's so, so much chaos that there has to be there has to be alternative ways of doing things and and because we're a capitalist system those ways of doing things it's going to be hugely impacted by money and power and relationships just like how those of power have relationships to the government and can move things by and get their way Um, we you know we talk about neoliberalism not not just because it's a big fancy word but basically broken down it's just saying that you know people private interests with money really rule the country and they may not be if i'm not not mistaken isn't baltimore the city where the the documentary the keepers was filmed about the catholic church how they control the political scene there do you remember that la the the documentary the keepers is about the corrupt Catholic system that occurred where the nun was killed. Yeah, it, it, it takes place in um, uh, Baltimore, Baltimore County. And that's what I'm yeah. saying. The, so the Catholic Church, they, they've they used, uh, they've been doing it for centuries. Well, that's but what I'm saying. Well, that system is so strong in Baltimore, and it has been for many years, that it's going to take some creative thinking, some new ideas to overcome that because the Catholic Church is corrupt and murderous, and they're going to do whatever they can to keep that system going. All right, well, so this all right. is one what I'm needs saying. to be Here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. Okay. All right. What the Catholic Church did, which anybody can do, they have educated, they, they educate people. Programs. They've Program. opened up schools. They've opened up schools. All right, they have from they have orphanages, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, and universities. What I'm saying is, this let's take African Americans. African Americans can do the same thing. Now we've done that, but we've got to do more of it. We also have to get politically involved because ballot box voting is one way to vote. The other way to vote is to basically bankroll politicians on the front end, help them get elected. Now, not only politicians, that includes district attorneys, it includes judges, 
we we're just it's a lot of places in within the system that we have been absent. We've got the money, but we haven't we haven't put enough of it in the right places where other people matter of fact a lot of us haven't even figured out the system yet. So if you don't figure out the system like for instance, marching Protests and all that, as you've heard me say on here a gazillion times, that's that's played out. What we've got to concentrate on is bankrolling the legal system, bankrolling the court system, getting in a position where we have the relationships to pick the next police chief, to pick the next DA. See, we're we're absent to a high degree from all those positions. But you know, I think that's true, but on, on some level, just like you have to recognize the corrupt Catholic system and, and learn from that system what you don't want in the new system. That's what I'm, the new, old paradigm is corrupt, killing people, murdering people to get to control and program the masses. And this new paradigm has to be get away from the focus on money, I'm sorry, and get on the, the focus of a spiritual evolution. All right, how that's you, what all right. in 2018 and beyond, how are you going to get rid of the capitalistic system in the United States? Keeping in mind that you like to travel. That costs money. So what are we going to do to replace it? It's not, it's not getting rid of the capitalistic system altogether. It's renewing people's minds on how this new paradigm should work and how the old one has corrupted and killed people. It's not, you know, it's not going to be one step, one solution to ever get rid of the capitalist system and we're done, we're good. No, I don't think so. It's going to be a matter of, like, like she's saying, bringing in new people, new ideas, getting rid of the old paradigm, all these people who want to throw money at everything. That's not the solution anymore. We've got to work up to that. It's not the solution to throw money at everything. We've been doing that for hundreds of years, and it's gotten worse and worse because money corrupts for most people. The more money people get their hands on, usually the more corrupt they become. They don't become more generous and heart-centered and spiritual. They usually become more corrupt. So it's a matter of working together like they're doing in Baltimore and coming up with new ideas. It's not going to take one solution. Well, let's start with one solution is let's get Ms. Gomez's book. Ms. Gomez, how, get, give us the title of your book again, and where can we get it? Sure. It's, it's called Race, Class, Power, and Organizing in East Baltimore. And uh, you can get it, actually, you can get it probably at a, hopefully, a local bookstore. Um, the publisher is Lexington Books, so you can always go to the to them. I don't, you know, I don't try to promote Amazon or not promote them, but I'm, I'm sure it's, it's on Amazon still. Um, so that's one way it's, I think it's digital as well as, uh, yeah, if you get it digitally, you can do that. Um, if you want, a, if actually, if you want a, a copy of it off my website, there's a website for the book. Um, you can download the different chapters for free, um, uh, it would require you downloading it. Downloading it. I don't have it as a PDF. But I have it as a print chat put on the website. Um, my own way of saying, hey, um, if you don't, you know, if you can't afford to buy it, you should you should be able to just download it, even though the actual uh, publisher hasn't 
given me permission for that. Um, I figured I wrote it and I can do that. Um, so you can the website, Race Class Power. Actually, my website is called B. Gomez. And you can um, find the, the tab for the book and you can download the whole thing um, as well for free. Um, so that's, that's a way to get it. Okay. I'm typically... <clears throat> I got like over a hundred books on my phone, so uh that's what we do to go the Amazon route. <clears throat> and I'll I'll you know, get it that way. Um well anything that you would like to promote besides the book. Now, you know, what's going on with uh where you guys need help with in Baltimore, if any, which you probably do, I'm guessing. Hello? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that last. I didn't hear yeah, that yeah, last thing. Yeah, what, uh, it, with your project in Baltimore, what kind of uh, help uh, is needed with that right now? Um, yeah, so the, this current project that we're working on around building alternative communities, um, it's it's fairly new. It's um, it's about maybe a little over a year now. We're just not getting a website up for it. For it, um, we're going to be looking at a, a crowdfunding campaign to get some support, um, and really just looking at different ways that people can plug in to help with the not just the organizing on the ground, but if you're not in the city, just how do you support uh, from a membership base to really start to not just build these kinds of alternatives in Baltimore, but elsewhere, right? In different cities that have the similar problem, how do we start rethinking? how to address rebuilding communities from the inside out instead of from the outside in. Uh, so it's a model mm-hmm. that we we want others to think about how to, you know, how do we organize within our own neighborhoods when we see that one of um, All right, let me, let me ask you this. Purchase All right. Let, let's say, okay, once you, you have got this this intentional community organized and developed in Baltimore, is will you guys be educating people on estate planning? Because once you have it built, you need to protect it, and then there's the legacy aspect of it. That's where estate planning comes in at. Because if you don't have a way to protect the community, and an estate plan to it, 30 years from now, it'll be gentrified. Anything like that included in this? Yeah, so that, you're talking a lot about, talking about things land trust. That you certainly should There's many people in Baltimore and elsewhere that Done is a way in for a long period or until it owns the land and it it buffers the the level that the cost of that property can go at reduce the likelihood that the property comes up cost in a neighborhood where the income of the residents is not going up. Well, that's 
um, those kinds of things keep in perpetuity and out of value, and it it allows profit where it doesn't be so high that that it shoots up and that's one way to keep land as a that's a so that use in New York City actually looking yeah. So that's the one the ones who are the owners and therefore they also benefit from the money coming in. And they are now terms of the community and do learn and what does this mean? Okay, hold your your phone was breaking or one of our phones was breaking up again. Could you repeat that last part again? Sure. I said there's firms and there's one that we're they come the and they have uh, things where there's popular education what can you what do you do when you hear me? Are you it's going in and out. Um, you know, I tell you what. Let's, because we've been we're almost two hours here. Um, yeah. let, let's make this part yeah. one. Okay, let's make part one. This will make this part one of an interview with you. So, thank you for coming on. And uh, I'm, I'm going to purchase a book. If people listening to this podcast, purchase her book. And then what we're going to do is we're going to end it for the day because we got this scratchy thing. I got a thunderstorm down here. That could be part of the problem, too. So on that note, thank you, Ms. Goldman. Thank you, people, for listening. On that note, everyone have a good rest of the day.